the Muslim background church is as strong and thriving and growing today as it ever has been. I remember asking a pastor in Baghdad, when you grew up, do you remember any Muslims at your church? He said, no, no, no Muslim background. They would have all been Chaldean, Catholic, or, you know, from a, from an ethnic Christian background. I said, how many, what percentage would you say today of your church is from a Muslim background? He'd say at least 50%. And you could ask that question in Cairo. You can ask that question in Casablanca. You can ask that question in, in Beirut, Lebanon, or Damascus, Syria. They would all say what we are seeing today. We're seeing far more, in some cases, never to be, never have been seen before uh, uh, Muslim converts in churches today. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hills in the studio today for the show where we speak to a different Christian each and every week and find out something of how God is using them, their life story, their testimony and their ministry today. This show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity. That is the UK's leading Christian magazine and it's published every single month in print. Take out a subscription now at premierchristianity.com. Pleased to say my guest on the show today is Joshua Youssef. He is the founder, president of Help the Persecuted. We're going to hear lots about his own story, journey to faith, his ministry, and maybe just a little something about his father. You may recognize his surname. And if you are a long-time listener of Premier Christian Radio, you'll be very familiar with the teaching of Dr. Michael Youssef. You can hear him right here on Premier Christian Radio. But Joshua, today's about you. It's wonderful to welcome you here to Premier. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's an absolute uh, pleasure. So take me back to the beginning of your story. Uh, a well-known father with a big international preaching ministry. What was it like growing up as a uh, as a child in that kind of Christian environment? Well, I have to say, my father, when he started uh, Church of the Apostles, it was a small uh, Episcopal church plant in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was no radio, no TV, no internet. Uh, we we maybe had I don't know three or four hundred people on a Sunday, um, so but he was he was known around the city around the community, so there was some notoriety. Uh, but we we grew up really in a very simple church plant environment, uh, and it was about the age of seven that uh, my father sat me down and explained the gospel to me, and I can remember making a decision at that point, and um, the decision was more of a trust in what my father was saying to me was truth than it was uh, a a grabbing hold of Jesus in a personal relationship way. Yeah, of course, because such a young age. I'm amazed you can even remember it. I can't can't remember much of what I was doing at seven years old, but, but tell me more about that moment i guess it's the begin it's the beginning of a journey isn't it it's not that everything can happen when you're 7 years old yeah i mean i i definitely fell in love with the church i i did love church i loved i loved uh, the youth group and i loved um the youth events that we did and i loved studying the scriptures and then having uh, different small groups with guys and but it was really more in my late teens early 20s when i got off to college and i remember going to university I remember, you know, ha- taking my Bible to college with me. I remember having an intention of connecting with a a Christian group of men, but at the same time, 
I wondered if maybe this was a season where I could kind of sow some oats, you know, some wild oats or, you know, that I could maybe get off the radar a little bit. And, um, and so I felt this tension then, like there was this tug of war. And this is when you were at, co- at college, at university. Yeah. And you say get off the radar. Is that because you were from a well-known ministry family by this point that you wanted to kind of a, a escape some of that? It did. In my late teens in high school, dad's ministry did start to take off. So there was radio at that point. There was no TV. There was, again, his uh, image became more pronounced in the city. And so people knew me as Michael Yusuf's son, you know. And so I I do think there was probably a little bit of that. There was also just this um, almost wanting to test the Lord in in an unhealthy way. Like, I want to test and see if you're real. Can you come after me? Wow. And and I, I can say there was a season in my latter part of my college life that I did want to to test the Lord in that way. And I remember I sometimes use the phrase that I was in a, a full sprint away from God's will. And I, along with a couple of guys who were younger than me, uh, decided one day that we were going to canoe a river. And there was a river outside my university that, that occasionally moved very fast. Uh, they, it was a hydroelectric plant for Alabama Power. And they released all this water as we were canoeing. Oh, wow. And um, that day, the water used to move at about 3,000 cubic feet per second, but it went from 3,000 to 12,000 cubic feet per second. And two of my friends nearly died that day. They, their canoe tipped over. And one of them actually, even with his life vest on, was actually pulled all the way to the bottom of the river. He took water on, and another friend of mine saved his life, um, had to resuscitate him. Another friend was stuck in that hydraulic for over an hour, um, and, and but, but survived. He had enough energy and strength to get up and get oxygen, and, and um, they both spent nights in the hospital. But the Lord used a friend of mine here in London, actually. He had written a letter that day that afternoon had written a letter of conviction to me, a letter of urging me back to the Lord. And so six days later, I get this letter in the mail that says, hey, we've been living with the swine. We have been running from the Lord. We need to repent. We have fallen prey to Satan's subtle college plan. I'll never forget that phrase. And I'm reading this letter and I pick up the phone and I call him and I said, this is before text messages. I said, how did you know to write that letter on April 26, 2001 p.m. London, when I, in the morning, East Coast, was dealing with this like horrific accident. He said, I had no idea. The Lord just told me to start writing. And I knew at that moment that when I said to you earlier, I wanted to see if the Lord could come after me, mm-hmm. I knew he was coming after me yeah. through that that uh, incident. It's a pretty strong sign, isn't it? So when you were dealing with that accident, as you say, friends of yours uh, fighting for their life. What? Where were you at spiritually in that particular moment? I mean, w- was sort of crying out to God in prayer an option for you? Did you feel like, no, I've gone so far away from God and, and rejected Him, I can't do that? Where were you at spiritually in the, in the middle of it happening? Well, you're asking some good specifics because there were some amazing things that happened that day. One was, uh, I remember crying out to the Lord, please don't kill my friends. I don't know why I, I had this like almost... Uh, in, uh, inarticulate something was happening I, I felt like the Lord was had their lives in his hands in that moment and I said please don't kill them because of what I've done and my sin um, and, and we were planning things 
the three of the four of us were kind of planning things even that weekend that the Lord, I think, was not pleased with. And I canoed down to the takeout spot. And when I got there, there was a young lady, a Christian, who said, what's happening upstream? I said, my, my friends are stuck in hydraulic. She said, let's pray right now. So she started praying. Turns out she was cousin to one of the guys in the accident. And then they sent a kayaker up to go and try to find my friends. And then I, they rescued one of my friends and I took him in my car to the hospital. The other one was still stuck. When I got to the hospital, there was this nurse and she said, I'm headed to church. I'm, my, my shift is over and I'm headed to church. I'm going to go pray for your friends. I said, let's, she said, let's pray for them right now. She said, Jesus, let this young man, Joseph, release him from that hole, from that hydraulic right now. And it, it was the most amazing thing that had ever happened to me. Um, and she got in her car and she said, I'm going to church. I'm, I'm punching off, taking off uh, for a minute, but I'll be back. And when I come back tomorrow for my, I'm, your friend's going to be in that bed, in that hospital bed. And sure enough, I got back in my car, I went back to the river. When I got to the river, they were dragging his body up the shore and they threw him in an ambulance, took him to that hospital. The next day, that nurse was at his bedside. Yeah. Incredible. It is amazing, isn't it, how often God seems to use the tragedies, the difficulties, uh, even the, the tragedies sometimes of life to, to draw people back to him. It seems to be very rarely that God uses the successes and the high points in people's life. It seems to be in those real, you know, when the chips are down, where things are really tough, that people come back to God. And it sounds like part of your story. It really is. You know, I, I have, I have a renewed sense of appreciation for God's use of suffering as a tool, um, and that that I think makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable because we think, well, that, how could he use that? Why would he use that? Is is he capricious? No, he's not capricious. He he's loving and and he's sovereign and he's so sovereign that he can use whatever he wants or whatever means. And unfortunately, because of sin, he uses the suffering to draw us closer to himself. I mean, Genesis fifty twenty, right? Um, what you all had intended for me for evil, God intended for good. Joseph Joseph's like, I'm going to save our people because of all these horrible things that happened to me. And so, uh, you know, and, and I in the, in the work that I'm in now, I see that every day. I yeah. see God using really horrible things and circumstances and, and even people, ISIS, to ultimately serve his purpose and, and grow his kingdom. Wow. Love to chat some more about that as, as we go. Before, just before we get there, just coming back to your uh, story. So you have this dramatic, I guess, coming back to, to God's, but you're obviously still at, at college, university. What was the kind of career plan and what ended up happening in terms of um, your your life after after those studies? You know, most of college, I thought, I really want to be involved in politics. You know, I think there's, mm -hmm. there's great opportunity there. And I think it was more of a power thing for me. I thought, oh, this could be a great way to, to reach for power and move up some sort of ladder. Um, I, I didn't know what that looked like at the time. And I'd even done an internship um, in D.C. But once I went up back to Washington, D.C. after this accident... It was as if somebody had taken my glasses off and replaced them with a whole set of lenses. I see, I saw things completely different. I saw the power struggles and the power grabs and the the ladder that that once seemed so attractive, all of a sudden it it was no longer attractive. And um, I remember my father, in that time, kind of came to me and said, "Look, God's given you a great gift at communicating. He's given you a great gift at." 
fundraising. He thought I'd be a great fundraiser, you know. And, and he said, come help me with leading the way. And I mean, if he had asked me that, you know, an hour before that river accident, I would have said, no way, absolutely no way. I'll never join you. Be cold day, in, you know, where <laughs> before I, you know, before I join you doing that. But, um, but that accident reframed everything. It reshaped the way I thought it. It was, it was just a different set of lenses. And I remember saying to him, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And that August, late August, early September, we flew to Egypt. And I remember, um, seeing these Muslims coming to faith in Christ and just being confronted with something I'd never seen or even really given thought to was this idea of people coming from a completely different background than Christianity or even a cultural Christian background coming to faith in Christ. And then, of course, 9-11 happened 10 days after that trip to Egypt. And it, it felt like I was in the middle of a storm. You know, I was in the middle of this storm, this global kingdom storm that I wanted to sort of stay in and, and, and fight and see what the Lord was doing in this part of the world. And, and all of a sudden there was this, I, I mean, it, it's hard for me to say it. I, it almost felt like, a, um, it became like an addiction to me. Mm. Like I want to, I want to go back to the Middle East. I want to do more in that part of the world. I, I, I became obsessed almost with these people, the, the, the Arab world, the, the Middle East, North Africa kind of region. And, and, uh, and yeah, so that was that was God really in, in just about I would say about six to nine months, completely reframed and reshaped the way I saw the world, the way I saw His kingdom, the way I saw um, uh, His people. Yeah, I'd love to talk a bit more about that post nine eleven moment, which we can both obviously remember. I mean, my memory of that time was it, it was obviously such a shock for for everyone, but I also remember attitudes even from Christians perhaps understandably there was a lot of fear Uh, and I can remember whether people meant this or not things being said that made it sound like Arabs were the enemy this sort of fear of well you're Middle Eastern you're out to get us right and of course you've just been to Egypt and seen Arab Christians right uh, brothers and sisters in Christ do you remember any kind of tensions around that time of going back to America and kind of attitudes even politically and in church post 9-11 did, did any of that kind of conflict with what you'd actually seen for yourself in well, Egypt well because I consider myself half Arab uh, I I did see it differently than a lot of people not I understood why um, Americans being such a parochial nation they didn't really understand nuance of the region so sometimes you would say things like there are Iraqi Christians and there are Lebanese Christians and there are Egyptian Christians and they say okay how and you go 2000 years ago mark went this way <laughs> thomas went that way and you know <laughs> you know andrew went this way and so you know they all kind of started these these churches and these churches have survived under like really stressful difficult terrible duress uh for for at least 1400 years um and so that that to me i mean historically i was ex- i was re-exposed mm-hmm. to that and in, in my own my own people i would say yeah. uh and, and and experienced a little bit of the like you know profiling you know i remember my mother and i traveling um shortly after 9 11 and and being singled out in this room and you know, we're like, okay, we know why we're here. Yeah. Uh, you know, our last name. Yeah. Uh, they were probably a little bit more confused by my Australian mother being there, but um, you know, and so I experienced a little bit of that, and it, and I, I don't harbor any like ill will or anything. I mean, I think 
it is what it is, and it is it, America reacted in the way that you would expect them to react. So there was nothing new there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I will say, and I love America. I'm grateful to be there, grateful to be a citizen of that country. But like my kingdom uh, citizenship has only become more, I've only become more patriotic in my kingdom citizenship as the Lord has exposed me to um, his, 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 his worldwide kingdom, his global kingdom. Um, that's so interesting. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. And I think that's, that's what happens when you travel, right? Yes. Where you are exposed to other cultures that aren't your own. And you realize God is at work everywhere. And and often God seems to be more at work in some of these other countries than my own. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I love and I like talking politics, and you know, I like kind of shooting the breeze with Americans and things. But you know, there are times like when I'm I'm in another country with a believer. Maybe his English isn't that great, but he's sharing the testimony of what the Lord has done in his life. And in that moment, I'm thinking, I don't want to be anywhere else but here right now. Like there have been times when I've been in one of our safe houses in the Middle East, and I thought. I just want, I want to bring my sleeping bag and I want to stay here with these young guys and I want to like hang out with them. I mean, it just, there's something so energizing about being with God's people, whether it's at home or abroad. And it's uh, it's a wonderful experience. So you're at Leading the Way, helping your, helping your father out for, for years mm-hmm. uh, before Help the Persecuted uh, began, which is what you're doing now. So just tell me a little bit about that time what you did, what you were brought on to do, what you learned, and, and maybe a bit of how that led into what you're doing now. Yeah, when I first started at Leading the Way, I began in um, more of the fundraising and development and marketing, um, and then moved into kind of more production and um, got involved in the international ministry. And in 2009, um, Dad and I had this kind of vision together of, of starting our own Arabic satellite channel in the Middle East. And we had seen others do it, and we had platformed some of Dad's content onto those networks. But we felt like there were some things missing uh, related to broadcasting, and so that's when we launched our own our own satellite channel. They call it the Kingdom Sat or Malakut in Arabic, and and that was a very exciting time. Uh, satellite TV was still very popular, um, and there were a lot of doors opening, like in platforms like Nile Sat and some of these more Arab centric platforms which previously had not been warm to Christians mm-hmm. uh, but were allowing Christian networks to come on and so um, I, we together we, we created content both in the west and in the east and I began to work on a, um, a follow up network so in, similar to Premier Radio that you know has a, a call center or a, you know a helpline you know like I don't think there's like some yeah. uh, you know and so we, we created that same type of follow-up network we called it audience relations which we had an audience relations uh, department in europe and then two in the middle east that would handle calls and facebook requests and instagram or you know whatsapp or i don't think instagram was invented at that point but whatsapp messages and uh, and then we had a whole follow-up team that would actually go and try to physically meet with people and that was a very complicated process right because you can't just show up in a small village in Morocco without the whole neighborhood going why is this guy here to visit you and what, who have you communicated with and so um, you know and I mean I would say 6 months into that our follow up team were saying up to the up to the audience relations and the and the in our our Atlanta office hey we're 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 dealing with like huge massive social problems here 
in terms of what people are experiencing after conversion or even if they have questions of what what happens when you ask the wrong questions and and so and I think it's worth under, underlying as uh, underlining as well that even the fact you had you have this team who once someone has made a commitment to Christ can actually be reported back I mean that is yeah. quite I mean it's important isn't it because you're connecting with people who've made a decision for Jesus. And also, it's not just, oh, yes, we broadcast this many people. It's like, well, we know this many people have actually come to Christ and we've had a conversation with them. That's right. But you are going even a step further than that in trying to meet them where they are and obviously encountering some some big issues. So, yeah, tell me more about what people are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, and people always ask, like, well, how do you how do you get connected with these people? And it, it, it takes a long time to build these relationships and to build trust. And, and there are even communities of follow-up people who do not want to be necessarily known and uh, they have we have kind of these I say clandestine kind of meetings in different places um, because what they're doing is sensitive because within very religious Islamic communities you have a, a response a very negative response to apostasy or coming you know leaving Islam but that that threat to the convert is equal to the person who's helping them so if you're if you're seen as aiding or helping a convert, your punishment could be as great or or greater than the person who 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 made the the, the profession of, of faith in Jesus. So um, so we've you know this took time. This took a lot of time, and they they are uh, they typically are a certain profile person. They're they're normally kind of daredevils. <laughs> you know they they're willing to take risks and and uh, and do things that other people aren't. And um, and so, you know, that's a network that I, I feel honored to work with and have had any relationship with at all. Um, you know, I, I tell people these are, you know, these are my heroes, right? I, I, I'm so weak. Uh, at, at my core, I'm just so weak in, in my faith sometimes. And um, I feel timid and discouraged or uh, la- I lack perseverance. And so when, I'm in, when I encounter these people who are... Um, who, who have such great perseverance under great stress, it encourages me, it encourages my faith, it encourages my love for Jesus. And so, yeah, it's a wonderful world to be living in and it's wonderful water to be swimming in. So did, did Help the Persecuted then emerge as a separate entity out of those people who were helping the, the, the often persecuted Christians? Yeah, we struggled, I mean, from like basically 2010 or 2011, we struggled really for seven years. Like, what does this look like? Okay. How do we... How do we run these two organizations yes. together? And it felt like at the time it was a great marriage because you had sort of broadcast and then follow up and then response. How do we help yeah. these people kind of thing? But over time, I think, you know, my father and I realized that um, sometimes when, you, when you're when you not as focused on one thing, you kind of end up becoming kind of bifurcated. And so the two of us just got decided at that point around 2017 that it was time to kind of begin separating out the two the two organizations. And um, and there were other things that kind of contributed to that. There were people that we kind of wanted to partner with at a ground level, which can sometimes cause, you know, can, can cause some heartburn. There's a number of American Christian ministries I can think of where there's been a kind of handing over the baton from father to son. Uh, Perhaps the most well-known would be Billy Graham handing over to Franklin Graham. Right, right. Was that sort of in the mix for, for you and your father, that, that your father was thinking ultimately you would become president of, of leading the way? Was, was that ever a, a conversation? Well, you're really getting into some uh, personal stuff. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I, we talk openly about it. I mean, what, what happened... Um, 
you know, there was um, the, 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 the previous presidential administration, the Trump-Pence administration, had wanted to try to uh, rebuild parts of Iraq, particularly these Christian villages in Karakosh and places like that. And a friend of mine in the administration said, I really think you should, since you all are doing work on the ground, you should explore this. And I think, you know, my father felt at the time, and I, I don't totally disagree with him, but, you know, he felt like, well, I don't think, you know, politics and ministry don't, they make strange bedfellows, you know. I don't think that's a good uh, partnership. And um, I kind of wanted to explore it. You mentioned Franklin Graham. I mean, he, he, he works with USAID through, through Samaritan's Purse. And so I thought, well, let's just try this out. And I think that was one of the things that kind of did cause a little bit of a fractious split in how we, how we viewed mm. the world and how we viewed who you can partner with. And, and we ultimately ended up did, we did get a grant and, and we were able to still maintain our Christian identity, our evangelical identity. It just meant that we had to do it on, on different terms. And in, in fact, it probably gave us more of an audience um, because we were able to, we, we, we ran a preschool, for instance, and the USAID funded that preschool. But they said, okay, you can't teach the Bible and all these sorts of things in Sunday school uh, at, the, at the preschool from uh, 8 to 12. And we said, okay, can we teach it from 12 to 4? And they said, absolutely. You do it on your own time. That's great. So we said to the parents, hey do you want to have your kids stay for another four hours while you're at work and we'll give them milk and an apple and a sandwich? And they a hundred percent said yes. Right. <laughs> so we had like even greater participation. You know? Yeah. So, um, so there were things that worked out through that process and the Lord used that, that, um, the, I don't want to say disagreement, but just the, the two differing opinions on yes. how this is to be done yeah. in a way that, that separated the two organizations and allowed leading the way to really flourish yeah. and allowed us to flourish. We were able to do things in Afghanistan that I don't think had we been under leading the way could they have happened. And so, Which of these topics has not been covered on PremierChristianity.com? UFOs, near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's return, the faith of celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. PremierChristianity.com. Special podcast subscription offer at PremierChristianity.com slash podcast. You know, what's your what's your elevator pitch if you're if you're back in fundraising mode for, for help the persecuted? You're trying to explain to me in 30 seconds. What is it that you guys do? Well, you know, I I always tell people we, we really are ministers of the gospel and our desire is to rescue, restore and rebuild the lives of persecuted Christians. And and we desire to see a persecuted church or a uh, beleaguered church that is suffering and is under great stress. We want to see it flourish. And, and that takes on different uh, forms. I mean, what we say oftentimes is a convert from Islam experiences what we call civic death. So when they come to Christ, their parents initially shun them. They will use any and all means to bring that person back to Islam. That includes locking them in their room. That includes taking away their cash and money and their passport. It take, it, asking their boss or whoever that or whoever's their their you know is providing the job for them to, to take the job away in an, in an effort to bring them to such a point of disparity that they would say I recant I'm ready to come back 
Sometimes they bring in the imam. Sometimes they, they use electric shock. We, we've heard stories of female genital mutilation. I mean, horrific uh, torture designed to bring people back to Islam. And so we said, okay, how, how do we stop that? I mean, in one sense, like, we, we can't always just stop persecution at every turn. But how do we minimize that as best we can? and to come alongside that person in a time of weakness to give them the strength that they need. And so we, we've developed networks of safe houses all across Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. And we've learned the hard way about safe houses. We've had safe houses raided. We've had safe houses broken into. Um, uh, yeah, we've had, to, we've had to move a lot of different places <laughs> in different countries and environments. And so you know, it's, it, so there's a safe housing component. It's like, how do we get this person out of danger and into safety? We've had amazing stories of, of people being rescued out of a small town in Iraq, in Mosul, Iraq, um, and then and then taken across into into the Kurdish region. We have a safe house there, and and we have people waiting for them to help them. Trauma counseling, um, you know, just active discipleship, a community of believers, and it's amazing when people come in and they say. I, I know I've given up my family, my earthly family, but I've discovered this new kingdom family that love me. And and, I, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the safe houses in, in that part of the world that I've been to, and it's it's an amazing fraternity of men who have have lost everything. Uh, they've lost their inheritance. They've lost their, their, their relationship with their parents and siblings. And yet they have such great love for one another and for the Lord, and they want to serve him. And sometimes it means serving them in that community. Sometimes we send them to a local seminary outside of that country in a place like Lebanon that's very safe. And then they go on to serve the church in that capacity. Obviously, I imagine a lot of these contacts who you first met were coming through leading the way, through hearing the gospel, through the, the satellite preaching TV ministry. As time has gone on, are you, are you meeting other persecuted Christians who have who've come to faith in a, in a different way? What are the main ways that... For example, some a Muslim in somewhere like Afghanistan. What's the main way that someone like that is going to hear the gospel? Well, and there's and there's other media too. You know, one one of my dear friends, brother Rashid. Uh, you know, he has over 1.5 million YouTube video watches and and half a million YouTube subscribers, two million Facebook followers, and he has he's on all these satellite TV channels. He's probably one of the most prominent converts from Islam from Morocco, and he sent he feeds us cases. I, you know, because he really, he knows that ground game, you know, his, his ministry is broadcast, but he feels like some people who are doing the ground game well need to be following up with these people. And so we do. And he himself was somebody who was followed up with when his family persecuted him. And he needed someone on the ground to do that. And so it's been really exciting partnering with someone like him. But also our team have developed their own uh, reputations in each of their cities and each of their countries and their communities. And so you might be a church, um, maybe you're a historic church that has a positive relationship with the government, and yet you, you want to help these people, but you don't want to help them at the expense of losing your church or losing your ability to navigate your current majority Muslim government context. Uh, or the relationship there. And so you, you end up partnering with people who are kind of a little bit more under the radar and willing to take a risk and, and, and have the uh, resources and the, and the capacity to do that. And so that's where we come in a lot of times. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what have been the lessons that you've learned 
for yourself personally, but perhaps also you think, wow, there are stuff here that the, the church in the West needs to learn from from these folk. Um, yeah, the kind of spiritual lessons, uh, the, the ways your own faith has changed and developed as a result of working with people in these kind of contexts. You know, I, I think um, in the West, there is this small G God of comfort and and we're all guilty of it. Like I, I fight with this almost daily. Like the the ideal American life for me, or the ideal British life, right? It's the it's the gated community, or you know, it's uh, your kids going to the right schools, or um, and in that though, what what that idol it, it becomes this idol of yeah, this idol of comfort and safety that is not promised to us. It's not promised. Jesus has not promised this. He's not promised that our lives will be easy. In fact, he promises quite the opposite. Um, mother will be against son. I mean, the, the, he came to bring a sword, not a physical sword, of course, but he came to bring some separation because of the fact that people, some people will not respond well to this message. And I think, you know, we, we have so, like, muddied this thing. We've so... Um, watered this down to this ideal life, this ideal uh, yeah, this ideal life and I I think the persecuted church kind of looks at that and sort of says that's not, that's not the gospel that's not what we're promised, that's not you know, Philippians 1.29 he says, um, it's not only for you to believe on Jesus Christ but to actually suffer for his sake Philippians 1.29 so this, there's almost this almost this promise of suffering or this expectant yeah. suffering that's supposed to happen that we're avoiding and that we're so uh, uh, fighting against in the West. Um, and so I think the church in the East does, I wouldn't say they fully embrace it, but they certainly embrace it more yes. than we do in that identity of, of picking up a cross and following yes. Christ, the Lord. It's, you know. it's expected, I suppose, as it was as it was expected for the early church and the early church were persecuted by the by the Romans, and many of them lost lost their lives for their faith. Uh, and as you say, this is happening in so many nations around the world, but of course not in the nation that, nations that you and I are from. And so, it's, persecution is just not on our radar in the same way. I mean, you brought up that verse about um, Jesus talking about family members turning against each other, mother turning against son, or fa- father turning against son. And and I often think of that in conversations like this, where we're speaking about the persecuted church because of course here in here in Britain the average story might be I came to Christ as a teenager and and my dad was an atheist and he, and he didn't like it much hmm. but you know it didn't like it much is is very very different to uh, a brother or sister in a in a in a Arab nation perhaps where it's it's not just that my mum and dad didn't like it it's that they were potentially physically abusing me or chucking me out of the home or all these other there's other level of persecution that just you and I, we ju- it just doesn't happen. And 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 I suppose we then tend to think that we're the we're the normal ones, and everyone else is abnormal. Whereas it's kind of the other way around, especially historically. I think most of the time, in most places, Christians are being persecuted. And and this, as you say, this comfortable life we have, mm. we're the ones who are a bit weird and unusual, aren't we? Yeah, I was. I was. Somebody was telling a story recently about. Um, uh, two two missionaries were uh, on on a motorcycle, kind of going through this war torn area, and and there were guns going off, and there were bombs going off, and one of the men kind of leans over to his friend on the motorcycle, and he says, "We are invincible until the Lord takes us home." Wow. I, I don't think we live that way. I think we say 
we're invincible as long as we put up enough fences and gates around us and 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 protect our kids you know from this and this and this and this and um and and yet you know and i i struggle with this as a father you know i, I we all want to protect our kids we all want to make sure that our kids are safe and and well taken care of and there's some biblical mandate for that but and sometimes i feel like it becomes an idol and um and so there are times when I say, I want, I want you kids to hear this story mm. of somebody who's suffering. And it's amazing to see what the Lord does in that because it, it sort of opens up their eyes to, oh, wow, there are people who are actually persevering under very challenging circumstances. Mm. So maybe it's not about my comfort. Maybe it's more about God's glory. And mm. so, you know, I think this, this is one of these conversations and these topics that could could reframe, especially people who are deconstructing their faith, mm. I think it could really reframe things for them. In fact, I have a dear brother who was deconstructing, and when he read the book uh, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, it so shook him that this man was persevering after his son had died on the mission field. And these horrific stories. It so shook him that it, it, it reframed his whole... It was like he was able to reconstruct from there. And so I do think the persecuted church has the capacity, if we tell the story well, uh, has the capacity to help those who are in that deconstruction mode. There are some people in your country and mine who will say Christians increasingly in the West are being persecuted. We're being forced out of public life. Laws are being changed. The nation's turning away from God. And they'll use that word persecuted. Are they right or wrong? I I don't want to minimize that, by the way. Uh, So, you know, I would say, like, my my family in Egypt in the 80s and 90s, they, um, they were a minority ethnic Christian population in a majority Muslim context. And they did, oftentimes didn't get certain job promotions. And there was a, there was a soft persecution. Um, and, uh, you know, so economically they were persecuted in some ways. And so you might look at that and say, yeah, compared to like when Morsi was in power, when they were actually burning churches and like trying to like witch hunt people. And, you know, so I I don't want to minimize the softer persecution because oftentimes that soft persecution leads to a much mm-hmm. harder uh, persecution. And so, yeah, I, I don't want to, if somebody was, um, for instance, vocal about their faith and lost their job as a result of that in London or in Atlanta, Georgia or L.A., you know, that I would still say is persecution. Um, Nobody lost their life, but they may have lost their livelihood. And I don't want to I don't want to minimize that. I mean, I I could be wrong, but, but one can make the argument that it appears that more of American Christian money is going into the American political system in fighting for our rights than it is to help persecuted Christians in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Egypt, etc. Yeah, well, that, that I think, you know, looking for a political solution to this, um, I mean, in one sense, I, it would be great to have more Christians involved in politics. That would be great. Um, but I do think sometimes uh, things do get blurred in terms of what is actually happening Um uh, whether it be Afghanistan or Pakistan or, or Iran, I mean, 
when we look at what's happening at a state level of persecution, the apostasy laws, and how people in Pakistan can be arrested two years later, they're still in jail with no formal charges filed, all because of a Facebook post. So that, to me, is a very different, it certainly is different than, um, than, than someone perhaps experiencing some persecution by their coworkers mm-hmm. in the West yeah. for being a Christian. So again, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't like to pit one against the other, sure. but, but we do have to be, you know, sober about what we're talking about here. Yeah. And just for you personally, um, is it, is it hard when your when your day job is dealing with really serious weighty matters and, as you say, even in this conversation, very sobering conversation about what our Christian brothers and sisters are facing, you know, does that can that affect you personally? Do you find you need to get the right downtime and look after yourself? Because otherwise, it can just feel very heavy and, and even depressing. There are there are times. I mean, there are some cases that can be very heavy, but a lot of times I tell people, you know, the Lord in His graciousness allows us to see, even when wicked and evil things happen, He allows us to see how he used it for his good. And and I could give you story after story after story of God, even horrific stuff where people have lost their children. And, and yet, in the midst of that great trial, we will hear them say, my greatest peace and my greatest joy is when I'm with the family of God. And so I'm grateful. While, I'm, while I want my child, my daughter, and my son back, I'm also grateful that he has given me a new family and he's given me this this joy that I can't you know, they experience a joy that I don't know if we've a level of joy that I don't know if we've ever experienced before and so there are these moments where you see this these these wonderful beautiful things happening a flower growing out of really great tragedy um, that the Lord has allowed us to see I mean I remember a brother in um, in northern Iraq in the town of Bartella and they destroyed his business, and he was a refugee, and he ended up coming to faith in Christ as a result of being a refugee. And he says, oh, I thank God for ISIS. And I said, okay, I think there's a, there's a mistranslation here. You, you, you didn't mean to say, I thank God for ISIS. You hate ISIS. He goes, no, I don't hate ISIS. I thank God for ISIS. If it hadn't been for ISIS, I wouldn't have fled Iraq. I wouldn't have come to Amman, Jordan. I wouldn't have heard the gospel in Amman, Jordan. My whole family wouldn't have been saved. And then he took the place of business that ISIS had destroyed. Once ISIS had been kicked out, he turned his place of business, which was a liquor store, into a church. It's probably the first church in his, I mean, the first evangelical church in his village. And so you go, oh, wow. Okay, God. Now I start to see when you say that you'll use the wicked Babylonians as a rod of judgment against Israel. Like, you can actually use even wicked means to bring about the expanse of your kingdom. Even today, 4,000 years after uh, Israel was, was captive by the Babylonians. So it's it's awesome to see. It really is just awesome. It's amazing. I mean, we hear um, rumors, reports of revival, church growth, in places like Iran on occasion and obviously people like yourself who work in these these areas you know you, you've shared some amazing stories already and of course uh, it's no surprise to anyone that you've not given us the full names of some of these people because it's so dangerous and so I understand there can be real difficulty for us in getting a really good clear picture but even so are you able to speak to the kind of big picture of some of these nations are the rumors we hear about ch- um, explosive house 
church movements, uh, rumours of Muslims having dreams and visions of Jesus appearing to them and, and converting as a result. Uh, how how accurate are these things? How widespread are, are these things? Um, because it's hard for us sometimes to get a sense of that. Data is very difficult to find. I mean, the, the data is, is hard to fully trust. I think it gives you an indication of what's happening, but it's not to be fully trusted. Uh, even even a Pew research thing that was done in Iran had a smaller number of Christians than the Iranians themselves were reporting. So you kind of go, okay, you know, th- there's only so much we can do from outside the country. But I, I can say that um, whether it's Iran or Iraq, I mean, the, 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 the Muslim background church, the MBB church, the Muslim background believing church, is as strong and thriving and growing today as it ever has been. I remember asking a pastor in Baghdad, I said, when you grew up and you were a a, a young pastor in the 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, I said, do you remember any Muslims at your church? He said, no, no, no Muslim background. They would have all been Chaldean, Catholic, or, you know, from from an ethnic Christian background. I said, how many, what percentage would you say today of your church is from a Muslim background? He'd say at least 50%. And you can ask that question in Cairo. You can ask that question in Casablanca. You can ask that question in, in Beirut, Lebanon, or Damascus, Syria. They would all say what we are seeing today. We're seeing far more, in some cases, never to be, never have been seen before, uh, Muslim converts in churches today. We know all the reasons why someone who is Muslim would not want to convert to Christianity, because in all of these cases, you could face. Uh, abuse, expulsion from your community, your family. There's no social reason to want to do this because it's dangerous. So what are, what are the things? What are the reasons why people from a Muslim background are converting to Christianity? Yeah, it's it's great question, Sam. Uh, it's dreams and visions. Um, there's no question. So I have a theory. I'm writing a paper on this for my seminary that um, the early 80s, there was a pastor in Cairo, Egypt, who um, the government had said, Look, you you can't uh, you cannot preach outside the walls of the church. Okay, you can do whatever you want inside the walls of the church, but you can't go out in the streets. You can't rent big stadiums and have big events. And so their church began praying. Okay, if they can't, we can't go to them. They need to come to us, but we don't know how to get them to come to us if we can't go tell them to come to us. So he started praying, like Lord, help us, help us. And and if you look at the phenomenon of Muslims having a dream of Jesus. Prior to about the 1980s, in my research, the only one I could find was like late 1800s. It was an imam, I think in southern Egypt or Sudan or some, maybe Sudan. He'd had a dream or vision of Jesus, first time ever recorded. But now you look at thousands, thousands, thousands of, of, of Muslims saying, I've had this dream or vision of Jesus. And it's interesting when you look at and you ask the question, how many of these have you had? It's typically about one. It's just one, maybe two, but one dream. They oftentimes uh, include... Uh, somebody who's wearing white, he's got light all around him, and he's saying things like, I am Jesus, I am God's son. And and almost always when you ask, well, what did you do next? And they either went to a traditional church or they went online and began reading the Bible. They, be, they discover the scriptures and they discover a church that's teaching the scriptures or an underground church that's dis- or, or an online community. It's amazing how many online communities are. And at that point, they begin to have this relationship with Jesus through his word and the dream stop. But you cannot, you know, I come from a reformed faith that 
a lot of people within the reform community are saying, no, we're secessionists. We, we don't believe that these things are actually happening in this time. It happened in the, in the order of salvation, in the historia salutis, the history of salvation, not the order salutis, the order of salvation. And so you kind of go, well, yeah, I, I don't know. You, you, not, it can't be that these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have all eaten the same bad falafel. You know, and so it, 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 it's a huge thing. It's a massive thing. I mean, every time I sit in, 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 my, in our safe house or someone's home and I ask them that question and they begin to tell this story, Jesus showing up and saying, don't run from me. I am Jesus. I am God's son. I love you. You know, I, I, we have a story of an ISIS leader. We call him Muhammad. It's not his real name. He was a Sharia judge in Syria. He'd executed people. He used to, he executed an innocent man one time and it so haunted him in his nightmares. He would see the floating head of this dead person that he had been responsible for killing and he was tormented by it. And so when he came to Lebanon, he'd heard about this Christian who worked for us and he said, go to this man and someone can help, he can help you get the answers that you need. And so he goes to our staffer and, um, and I can say his name because he's public on social media, but Emil is his name. And so he goes to Emil, and Emil shares the gospel with him. And, 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 and Muhammad is so overcome with anger, he thinks, I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill Emil. I'm just going to have to kill him. He's, a, he's, a, he's telling me things that are not true. Jesus, God did not have a son. It's forbidden that God would have a son, that Allah would have a son. And so he goes away, and he thinks about how he's going to kill him. And he has this dream. And in this dream, Emil is the one coming to him. And when Amal gets to him, he has this white envelope in his hand. And in the envelope is blood, and the blood is dripping from the corner of the envelope. And so Muhammad leans into the envelope that Amal is holding, and he smells. He sticks his nose in it. And when he sticks his nose in it, it smells beautiful. It smells like perfume or incense is what he said. And in that moment, he wakes up, and he thinks, okay, that blood is either my blood that's going to get spilled because I'm going to have to kill Amal, as a, as a, you know, to kill, you know, avenge him, avenge Allah, or it's, you know, it's, it's Amal's blood. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to spill it either way, you know? So, so he goes to Amal, he's angry and he tells, he says, I have to tell you about this dream. And Amal says, that is Christ's blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I've already told you this, Muhammad. And Amal says, Muhammad just starts weeping. And I asked Muhammad, I said, how often in your, in your life, childhood, adult life, have you cried? He says, maybe when, as a kid, I cried once, but I never cried as an adult. And I said, what do you think? He said, the Holy Spirit was, was getting a hold of me. And, and I mean, this is five, six, seven years ago. I mean, he's serving the church now. He leads small groups. He leads worship. He plays guitar. He's, he's, he's former Prince of Isis, now serving the church because the Lord sovereignly reached out to him in a dream to reveal this to him incredible yeah so um why don't we see that in the west why why is it that uh yeah we publish stories um every month is one of the joys of my job is that i'm never short of a testimony of of how someone came to faith and and we do stories all over the world um but certainly the average story of someone in in the uk doesn't tend to i mean occasionally but doesn't tend to involve a supernatural dream whereas what you're saying is this is widespread across the Arab world with people who are Muslim. It, it's very common. So it seems like a distinct thing that, that, God's, that God's doing. I mean, within Islam itself, dreams and visions have a very high priority. And so it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the Lord is using this means that they esteem to do that. And that may be one of the reasons. One of the other reasons is that 
you know, access to God's Word, although the Internet really has changed that a lot, but access to God's Word and God's people, the body of Christ, the church, is, is, is difficult in that part of the world. It's not easy to access. And so is it possible that the Lord is using that a, a different means Whereas in the West, we do have access to God's Word. We do have access to a church. I, I went to a wonderful church here on Sunday. I, I, could have, I could have probably got on the tube for another 10 minutes and found another good gospel-preaching church, you know. And so um, we have access that the others don't, that, the, that the, those in the East don't. So that, that could be a part of it. The other thing is I, I wonder if we become too overwhelmed and overcome with this idea of like a rational faith you know everything else needs to be rational logical and 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 very western in our way of thinking that we we have suppressed the idea i mean again i love my seminary and i love my professors and things but they're the the, the idea of the god's gifts have ceased you go well maybe if we keep pushing this kind of cessationist kind of thing maybe this is where God's like okay I'm not going to yeah. use those means well certainly if you, if you don't believe these things exist you're not going to try and pursue them are you for sure well that's true too um, and what does the uh, what does the future hold for you do you think this is this is it now you're uh, um, this is the ministry God will have you in for the rest of your life or do you have other other dreams beyond help the persecuted no I, I, I hope I always am working with the persecuted church to what extent I don't know but I hope I'm always 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 working with them um, but, um, but, you know, I, I, I have loved serving in the church environment and, you know, if God calls me to pastor or, um, which is what you're expecting originally, wasn't it? When yeah. You, when you first sort of came back to God, you thought, okay, God's going to call me to, I guess, do similar things to your dad in that. In yes. That yes. There, it was certainly in the back of my mind that that would always be. And, and then I sort of pushed it to the further back of back burner. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've enjoyed serving as an elder in our church and, uh, my wife and I are part of a church plant in the city, and so that's been kind of exciting. And so church, church planning and city, um, uh, you know, seeking out the city and the and the welfare of the city has been certainly something I've enjoyed being a part of. Um, but also at the same time, the global church has been, yes. you know, pulling on my heartstrings too. Sounds like a very, very full life. Um, well, thank you so much, Joshua Yusuf, for coming in and spending a bit of your time here in London, right here with us at... Uh, at the Premier Christian Radio Studios. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks, Sam. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.